You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Welcome so much to the Lit Week, Palo Alto. Even though we're not directly in Palo Alto, right next to the train station. We appreciate you all coming today. I know the weather hasn't been great, so we're really glad that you're joining us. This is our fourth Litquake Festival at the JCC in Palo Alto. It's a great opportunity for all book lovers, sharing of ideas, and building community. And for those of you that are new to the JCC, we actually have programming all year round. I welcome you to join us for we have arts and dialogues. Um, Frank Bruni, New York Times columnist, will be joining us next week. So I welcome you to join us for that. Um, today we are talking about memoirs, life stories from the male point of view. So I'm going to introduce our moderator who will introduce our other guests. Um, we'll have a conversation for about half hour or so and then open up a few minutes for Q&A afterwards. And uh, I believe hopefully both of our, all three of our um, guests will be here afterwards signing books and engaging with folks. Um, there's a booze and schmooze, no obligation to drink, but food and book signing as well in the cultural arts hall behind you. And our author's books are for sale with Books Inc. back there as well, unless you're lucky to grab them out of their hands and get the special one editions. Um, I'd like to introduce Rick Kleffel, our moderator. Rick reports on literature, technology, and whatever he can talk his editor into at NPR. He hosts an hour of literary and theatrical talk on Mondays at 7 p.m. on KUSP 88.9 FM for the California Central Coast. Rick also writes about books and podcasts and interviews authors at the Agony Column. He is also currently working on a new podcast and blog called Narrative Species, and you can catch his Thought Leader, Leaders podcast on iTunes. So welcome, Rick, and our other authors, and I'll hand it over to Rick, please. Thank you very much. With me today, we're really honored to have two really wonderful writers who have a command of language and stories that will really captivate you when you pick up their books, and you should do that sooner rather than later. Sitting right next to me is Jamal Yogi. He's the writer and producer. He's the author of Saltwater Buddha, A Surface Surfer's Quest to Find Zen on the Sea, which was selected as one of E's best summer reads. A documentary film based on Saltwater Buddha was released in 2015, and his second book is The Fear Project. Thank you for joining us, Jamal. Thanks, Rick. And, um, and the movie's actually uh, just coming out this year because we had a... Uh, it was supposed to come out, and as move, as I'm learning from the the uh, documentary film business, if, if you think you're almost done, you have about five more years. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so anyway, thank you. There's the world of real time and the world of Hollywood time. Thanks. <laughs> and also with us, we're honored to have Kevin Sessoms. He's the author of the. New, acclaimed New York Times best-selling memoir, Mississippi Sissy, which won a 2008 Lambda Literary Award. He's also the, an author of the recent memoir, I Left It on the Mountain, published in 2015. He was the editor-in-chief of 429 Magazine and Andy Warhol's interview, as well as a contributing editor to Vanity Fair, Allure, and Parade. Gosh, thank you for joining us, Kevin. Thanks. We're here to talk about memoirs, and I think what strikes me about 
this kind of panel and the kind of conversation we can have is that every human comes built in, we're born with a storytelling machine. It's hardwired, it's a part of our brain, it will not stop no matter what until we stop. Men's storytelling machines are gathering different data, they're using different senses, they're putting together their stories, I think, in a different manner, and all of us do it differently, make no mistake about it. There's vast variety, no two humans are alike, but I think men's have a diff, we have a different take on things. We have, our cameras are working differently, our internal editors are working differently. Uh, let's just hear some raw tape, so to speak, from the storytelling machine. Uh, Jamal, would you just pick a part of your memoir and read us about a minute or so? Oh, let's geez, okay. Uh, your, your voice. I hadn't thought about what I might read, but uh, let me, uh, well, I'll start at the beginning. Um, Always a good place to start. So uh, my book, the first third maybe, is about when I was 16 and I ran away from home. Um, and I lived in Sacramento. I grew up more or less in the valley, but um, lived all over because my dad was in the Air Force. And so this is just sort of setting that scene for um, why I wanted to get back to an island um, after you know, getting stationed in Sacramento. When I was three, my dad got stationed at a U.S. air base on the island of Tercera off the coast of Portugal. We flew there on a military cargo jet, ears plugged to soften the engine roar. We moved into a white adobe apartment above a shoe store where wool-sweatered men smoked cigars and stray dogs begged. This was before my parents started fighting and years before their divorce, so there were four of us in the family, a round number I often thought, a good number. My older sister, Ciel, and I found endless satisfaction in the novelties of the island, the bullfights bull on cobblestone streets, the patchwork lava rock walls that quilted the hills, the serrated bluffs dotted with old fishermen, the spitting llamas. We adopted 14 puppies and fed them oatmeal. We built forts out of mud. We climbed into the foggy hills and searched for wizards. Most of all, we loved the beach. The praia, as we called it, an attempt to feel local, lay just down the street, a two-minute walk. We could always hear it and smell it. The beach was littered with trash. The wall at its border was stained in graffiti and urine, but the sand was soft and the ocean warmed by the Gulf Stream. My dad taught us to body surf. As a teenager, he'd been a surfer in New York, one of the brazen few who'd surfed Jones Beach in the winter in jeans and a wool sweater and then in Hawaii while stationed on Oahu during Vietnam, the Vietnam War. He often told us nostalgic tales of big waves, near drowning, heroism. Then he taught us to watch the waves, how to jump off the sand at just the right moment so the wave caught you in its grip like a baseball mitt and thrust you forward like a roller coaster. How's that? Perfect. That sets the scene quite well. Kevin, why don't you set us an opposite scene. <laughs> Very opposite. That was beautiful. It's beautifully written. I, I think these guys are both fabulous prose writers and storytellers. Um, let's see. Um, well, I'll read something from my first book, I guess. Um, 
Uh, since I'm at a Jewish cultural center, this has a reference to uh, uh, something Jewish, I think. Um, excuse me, I have to put on my reading glasses because I'm old. This is my sitting on the porch rocking glasses so I, so I can see you. Uh, these are my reading glasses. Wait a minute. Uh, I always say when people ask me to describe my writing style that it's um, it's Eudora Welty holding a jockstrap. Uh, and this explains that. If I can just find it here, I had looked at it, but um, let's see. It's the very end of this. Um, that is a well-thumbed copy of that book. It is. You know, I'm doing. <laughs> I a, love that. I'm doing. I'm adapting this book uh, into a play for New York Theater Workshop in New York, and so I've been really thumbing it <laughs> lately. Um, this is the end of the second chapter. Um, it's at a party in Jackson, Mississippi, when I'm 17 years old, and when I was adopted into a sort of a very um, literary, literate uh, world. Uh, it was very sophisticated for Jackson, Mississippi. It was in the middle 70s, and Eudora Welty was sort of the dead mother of it. Um, uh, it all centered around a little theater called New Stage, and this was a cast party. Uh, a man named Frank Haynes was the first guy who ever mentored me. He was the uh, art editor for the Jackson Daily News. He wrote a, a, a column. and. Uh, he was like he was the first man who sort of cut me out of the herd and said, "Join this fold as we cut you out of that herd. Come join this one," um, and made me realize that all the things that um, a little sissy boy thinks are really bad about him can be good about you and make you special. And some people like those things that other people dislike about you. Um, so I was at this party for all these grown-up, sophisticated people. And I was 17, and I was, and I had you know, hair down to here, and I was sort of exotic looking. And, um, and anyway, this is sort of the end. There may be some references here that you won't get because I haven't read the, read the whole chapter, but Miss, Miss Welty was getting drunk, as she often did, and uh, she was doing a bee lily imitation for, for, for some friends. Uh, so I looked over uh, and was shocked to see Miss Welty winking up at us, lower the strap on her dress. Vamping now, she exposed a bit of the flesh on her gibbous shoulder and continued her rhythmic high-pitched patter to her friend's muffled laughter. Yesterday night, I went to a marvelous party with Nuno and Nato and Nell. Frank held up the album he had just taken off his turntable. No coward, he said, pointing to its cover. Eudora's doing Bee Lily, doing Noel Coward. He put on some Mabel Mercer. I met him once, Noel Coward. It was on a New York trip. We're all in the same room as Cardinal Spellman. Um, would you mind taking Eudora home tonight, dear boy? She's in no condition to drive herself. I have to stay around to um, tend, to, tend to my guest. This party does not seem to be petering out. Perhaps I'll get out my uh, Noel Coward in Las Vegas record and play that last cut on it. The party's over now, very loudly. Wait here, I'll convince uh, Eudora to it's time to go. Oh God, she's starting it on I'm a Campfire Girl. But I want to stay, I'm having fun, I whispered back at Frank while I kept staring at the dashingly handsome, blonde-haired, 35-year-old advertising executive, a new stage st st 
Stalwart, who was playing the older son, Jamie, in a long day's journey in tonight. His name was Carl Davis, and he had made it very clear that he had a crush on me. I was ready to make it very clear that such a crush was a, credi a credible e emotion. Can't someone else take Miss Welty home, I asked. I think Carl's ready to make a pass. Frank placed an avuncular hand on my cheek and softly patted it. He sweetly, knowingly smiled. Do as I say, he said. Take Eudora home. Trust me, you'll write about it one day. <laughs> After Miss Welty wavered a bit on a Campfire Girl lyric, <clears throat> Frank helped me escort her to the front porch. Behind us, the frivolity continued. Kevin can take it from here, Eudora, he said, kissing her on both cheeks. Talk to you tomorrow, and I um, have to get back to my, to my guests. You're such a sweet boy to be carting me home. Miss Welty said and allowed me to take her arm. My white Mercury Comet was parked on a little hill that led down to the Jewish c cemetery. It had rained all day and we had to be careful not to slip as we traversed the treacherously slick blades of grass. I led her to the passenger side of the front seat and opened the door for her. I'm fine now, she said. I let go of her arm and hurried around to the driver's side. When I opened the door, I discovered that Miss Welty just had. I'd forgotten to clean off my front seat after I worked out that afternoon and my dirty gym clothes were still strewn where I'd thrown them on her side of the car. She held my jock strap pinched between her index finger and her thumb and was carefully placing it on the back seat. Her large roomy eyes focused on my guilty face as surely as my father's had when it was I who held the jock so long ago in such a manner in the locker room where he coached. Sorry Miss Welty, I said as she wiped her finger on her lap. The very same fingers, fuck, I wanted to say out loud, with which every one of her stories had been typed on her old underwood upstairs in her bedroom over on Pinehurst. She smiled at my embarrassment, then looked out her window at the neighboring grave sites. Oh, I just thought that thing was a little Jewish ghost, she said, <laughs> now waving her hand dis dismissively. We've all got our ghosts to tend to. She looked back at me. She reached over and tapped my steering wheel with her storytelling fingers. Now let's get going, she said. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, that was <laughs> Those were two fabulous uh, tours to some very different parts of the world. One of the things that interests me most about memoirs is that we all have, you know, this our narratives in our head of who we are. But when you sit down to write it out, that requires a different kind of storytelling organizing principle. And also, you might not re grab out the same memories when your fingers are hitting the keyboard or writing in your notebook. So uh, Jamal, t tell us a little bit about your sense of story. When you sat down to write out your story, how did you decide where it began, where it ended? What was your sense of the storytelling, the bits of the storytelling machine that you were going to mine and edit, you know, using your little iMovie program? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I, well, I sort of stumbled into being a, a, a memoirist and um, through journalism. And the only way I really knew how to tell a story uh, had been through reporting. And then you go and, and you try to spin something entertaining out of, you know, you're out there for a few weeks getting to know these characters. You've got your quotes, your facts, your stats, your moments. Um, and what I would always do, instead of going through all my notes right before I started writing, I would, 
I would sort of close my eyes and think of movie scenes. And wow, it really was high movie, wasn't it? <laughs> and or just what was memorable to me, like you know, what were the lines, what were the quotes? Was there a few quotes from those interviews that just stood out that actually, you know, I don't have the best memory, so I figured if it if it stuck to my memory, it, w it had to be good, and I knew I wanted to include those. And um, and then for this book, Saul Water Buddha, uh, I was just out of journalism school and it was between when I started working at San Francisco Magazine and um, di and just didn't have a job yet and uh, surfing and meditation have always been big parts of my life and so I wrote uh, a story for a Buddhist magazine Shambhala Sun about how about surfing and mindfulness and I was thinking this is a terrible idea like I'm gonna you know here I am I've just graduated from Columbia Journalism School I'm supposed to be like you know hitting the political beat which or the or you know doing something serious and but I I needed money and I had an idea to do it and I did it and it sort of went out into the ether and and was published and then as I started working that article was published and it went viral and a publisher contacted me and said, would you like to do a, a, a book about um, mind, about Buddhism, Zen and surfing? And I thought, no, 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 I don't want to do that because then I'll be a guru and I'll have to be, you know, just like a, in Marin the rest of my life teaching yoga, which is would actually be a great life, but it just wasn't what, you know, I was 50, 50 grand in debt for a journalism degree. I was going to go be a real journalist. and. Um, and I thought, uh, well, maybe I thought about. I, first, I said no, and then I went back to work, and then I thought about it, and I said, well, maybe I could do this as sort of a quirky memoir about my, you know, strange family who were military, you know, long, many generations of military brats. Yet uh, my mom was Jewish, my dad Catholic. They'd both become, you know, uh, named me after their yoga guru. We were just a strange bunch, and uh, and I thought, well, maybe I could do it as a memoir, and they liked that idea, and and then I was just thrown into it, and I did it just like a journalism story, where I thought, well, I have to, f I have here are my parameters, I'm ri I have to sort of weave some surfing and zen into this, but I want the stories to be what uh, you hang your hat on, um, so I just picked out movie moments from my life that. Uh, and and tried to, you know, package them into chapters, and um, you know it it was it was painful, <laughs> but uh, but something came out and you know edited it down and um, but I still even I teach a memoir class now and I, um, I still sort of go you tell people to do that you know just go back to one moment that sticks and then write your chapter around that sort of find how the story everybody has a different strategy but that's one of mine kevin you know what strikes me about your your memoir is that it's heavily dialogue based and i really love that you have a great sense of dialogue pacing and capturing it that's some rock and fun stuff you're writing about uh, the first first memoir was um it's very novelistic and um um, I use some of the techniques of a novel. It's about my life as a child. Um, it ends at the age of 19. I'll be 60 in three in three weeks. Um, so it was a very traumatic childhood. I mean, my father was killed when I was s s uh, seven in a car wreck. My mother died of cancer the next year. The 
the man that's in that scene, Frank Haynes, uh, became very important in my life. I found him murdered. Um, and I, I was living with him at that point. Um, uh, I was 19. So um, I wrote that book with knowing it would only be from my childhood to the age of 19. And it was like writing about a character. It was very much, I mean, I've carried that boy all my life with, with me, but um, it wasn't really writing about myself almost. I mean, uh, because of the early trauma in, in my life, I don't know what came first, being a writer or coping with the trauma, or maybe being innately a writer helped me cope with the trauma, but the minute I lost my parents as a child, I went in the door, I, I went and sort of closed the bedroom door and realized the way to cope with that was to look at life as narrative and to have this separate quality to life. Uh, I think all writers sort of finally have that gene that we have a separateness and see even our participation in our own life as, as a narrative. Um, my second book I wrote to save, to save my life. I mean, I was, um, I was a meth addict and sticking needles in my arm and I'd lost everything. And, uh, I was homeless and broke and um, I had nothing left. Uh, that was only four years ago in June. Um, so I wrote that in the midst of that um, to s save my life. Uh, so I wrote about ad addiction and getting sober and uh, redemption and forgiveness. Uh, so that, that was a very different book because I was writing about myself now. And it was a much harder book to write. And I wrote half of and most of it sober. Uh, and the first book I wrote a lot. I would never write high, but I'd always smoke a joint at the end of the day to read what I'd written and edit a little high. Uh, so I had to write a book completely sober, which is a whole other experience. I mean, there's a reason writers drink, uh, trust me. Uh, it, it sort of, it opens some sort of weird subconscious thing that I think you need to write. But as, I don't think of myself as a journalist. I've, I've you know, plowed the fields of journalism, but I'm uh, more of a mule than a flower, I think. Uh, uh, I talk to celebrities, I know how to talk to them and find their stories, so I know, I see a narrative in their lives too, and, and when I hang out with them, and what I learned from doing that, that I could apply to the memoir and the writing my own story is, is I look on it as sculpting. Um, when you sculpt something, it's all about the clay you remove. It's not the, about the clay that's left. So that there's a lot of negative space in the uh, exercise of writing. I see it almost in the visual sense. You talk about movie scenes. I see it as sculpture. And um, the negative space of a story is just as important as what you see, so what you leave out is just as important as what you keep in, because what you leave out shapes the narrative also in a very specific way, because it, it puts the contours into the, into the cheekbones of the story. Mm. That's, that's so interesting. I just want to riff on that for a second, because I've been telling my wife that when I think about, I just did a memoir that's closer to now, and um, and I, she was saying, you know, what's it like? And I said, well, uh, the book is, you know, I started in this huge junk pile of wood, and I'm just ripping stuff away. 
and underneath I know there's this there's a boat there in this like pile. I was picturing it kind of in Pacific off the coast. I'm just like pulling these boards off and I know the story's already there, but I just have to get rid of all the uh, the stuff and it's I wonder if, I don't know if that's unique to memoirs because you just, the problem with memoir is that you have too much information. Sure. And so you just have to, it's, it's so much about removing um, what you are not going to tell and letting the, the story that's already there sort of be there. Um, but I love, the, yeah, I, I, that's uh, a neat image to have the sculpting one. It struck me too, uh, Kevin, when you were talking, and and also uh, Jamal, that the there's uh, something I think that men are really good at, which is compartmentalizing, and this that gets to this kind of narrator uh, feeling that all of us had, which also leads to something else that I think almost every man suffers from, which is imposter syndrome. We might be standing here feeling like, oh, all this. But we might, deep inside, be thinking, oh my god, <laughs> they're going to come and tell on us <laughs> and figure out that we're all just terrified inside. So, and I think that the way we, we will build up walls and compartmentalize ourselves, and so we can kind of look over there and say, well, I guess that's what we did, and I'll take that and that and that, and that sounds good to me. <laughs> so do you guys do that kind of compartmentalizing? Is that conscious or is that just do you think that happens at all Kevin he wrote a book about being mindful so <laughs> I'll, I'll let him talk about this <laughs> you know uh, I mean certainly the imposter thing rings true of um, you know not uh, feeling like uh, I'm the real thing or uh, you know what who am I to tell this story or um, think that anybody cares or you know um, is this, you know, uh, am I just a huge narcissist? Why, why am I doing this, you know? And, and uh, I mean, you just, uh, to me, writing the whole process is just dealing with doubt and, um, and then learning to uh, accept, uh, one, have faith in the process and have faith that we as humans have enough in common that telling a story honestly has value. Um, and that if you can get through, uh, if you can stop bullshitting yourself and say something real, that that's going to, that may or may not be helpful to someone else, but it's helpful to you as a writer and, and, and it has value. Um, so I think just reminding myself of that over and over again, it, it helps cut through that imposter uh, feeling, but I, I think that never goes away too to some degree. Uh, it's just uh, human insecurity. Um, but, uh, you know, you, when you put, also, I've been fortunate, and like Kevin, to be able to, to do this. There's so many great books that ne are never published, and when you do that first one and people say, hey, I got a lot out of this, and then that helps you to cut through that imposter feeling of like, hey, well, you know, Somebody, somebody says, like, I read that book and it's, you know, it saved my life or it kept me from, you know, it helped me make this decision. And, and um, so, uh, but as far as the compartmentalizing, um, I, don't th I don't think of myself as particularly good at that, so I don't think I'm <laughs> the right one to answer that. <laughs> Maybe Kevin can. I'm not, I don't compartmentalize either. <laughs> um, um, I, I mean, I'm, the second book is about 
living a secret life in a, in a way because I, I was an addict. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of addiction is about doing it in secret, especially if you're doing illegal drugs uh, and finding other people who will do things in secret with you. Um, uh, finding the secret uh, drug dealer who will secretly come over to your house um, um, and uh, and you live lie and you tell a lot of lies. Um, so to write a book publicly to say you were living a secret life and not tell a lie about it uh, was a interesting process but you know I've always been I mean I came out of the closet and I mean you talk about man 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 I mean you know I'm a gay man so there's like another layer to it like you know oh, I guess absolutely. Uh, um, but I came out of the closet when I was 15 you know and that was you know 1972 71 in Mississippi um, so I've always used honesty as almost a weapon I think because uh, I realized early on in life that a lot of people aren't uh, blatantly honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying they're dishonest, but they're not blatantly honest. They don't like throw honesty in your face because it's, sometimes it's, it's, you don't have to be so openly honest. And I learned in my, in my truck driving job, as I say, what I do for a living when I, I interview people. It's just, I think of myself as a truck driver. I, I put glamorous cargo in the truck and I haul it to deadline and dump it out. And I put some more glamorous car, I have a very blue collar attitude about what I do in the magazine world. Uh, but in that job, I, um, I, you know, alone in a room with people like like that you're talking to, uh, you can be just, um, I mean, just deadly honest. I mean, dastardly honest, and uh, then you don't use it in the story, but you, you but you do it to sort of throw them off balance. And go, well, this guy's gonna be, because usually these people are competitive, and if they're, and they're going, well, if you're gonna be that honest, I'll show you. I can be more honest. Uh, you know, so it's sort of a tool I use to get people to talk in a way, to throw them off balance and to get their competitive. Although it worked it worked against me the other night in this kind of sit situation, talking to a memoirist, Joel Gray. Uh, I'm now the editor at large at the Curran Theater in San Francisco and one of the things I do is I sit on stage like this and I talk to people and it's a whole other way to interview someone in real time as a performance aspect and try to get them to talk to you. And he's written this very honest, bracingly honest book. Um, and he was fine beforehand, and he was fine afterward, <laughs> but during it, oh my God, he was a shit. And he, was, he, he, he sat opposite me, and I could see it in his eyes. It's like, okay, I'm gonna compete with you. You think you can get me to talk? I'm not gonna talk. And yet, he, if he won, he was losing, because people were there to hear him. It was the weirdest thing. And afterward, I, at, we went out to eat, and he was amiable and nice all over again. Like, the, it was like switch, switch. Like, he was a totally different person in the spotlight. And I think this, I think once it gets up on the internet, it'll be infamous, because they've already written about it twice in the San Francisco Chronicle about what a weird night it was. Uh, it was weird, and in the, I mean, I was literally a deer in headlights. I mean, it was just, what am I gonna do with this guy? But he talked about it afterwards. He said, look, I can be really open in the book. I can write all this honest stuff in the book and not be there when the reader reads it. There's a separateness to the honesty. Mm. You don't have to be in the room with your own honesty. 
And then I, I didn't realize that until he, because I'm just, I'll talk about anything. You can ask me anything, <laughs> I'll talk about it. And he, in the moment in that spotlight, he couldn't talk about it in front of people. The same shit I just read in the book. It was the oddest, I mean, I'd never, it never dawned on me before. He even said that when he was doing the audio book, that he had to stop and take like a week or two off from it because just reading it out loud was upsetting him. It was, I mean, I've, I've never, it never dawned on me that that could be part of the process because I have no trouble talking about anything. I mean, I think I'm the only person who ever went to a shrink to shut down. I mean, I went to a shrink to like, get some mystery <laughs> in my life. <laughs> well, one thing that strikes me too is that uh, both of you are very much uh, gentlemen who will do it your way. That's you. You will say what you want to say, the way you want to say it, and you will talk as much as you want to say, maybe more than people want to hear, maybe less than actually is, but that is that. And I think that that uh, kind of uh, unguardedness, uh, it's a little bit of bravado and it's a, a little bit of um, self-protection both at once. And I, I think it's an interesting, when you read uh, both of your books, like kind of in sequence, well, especially yours, the second one, you know, the uh, about fear. I mean, that <laughs> that really gets to the point of, you know, we're we are all our own worst enemies and all our own best critics. Yeah, um, I, you know, getting to that. Uh, Honesty part, I think. I it's funny. All my all my gay friends, I, I feel like there must be something where when you come out, that moment of pure honesty must like get you over a hump where you're just like, well, I did that hard part, and now I can just be myself. And I think a lot of people don't ever get that opportunity to have to confront that. There are a lot of dishonest gay people, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I, my brother-in-law, though, I, um, I actually use him as a um, sort of in my mind when I'm trying to be cut through some BS. It, he's gay, and he just has this sort of, you know, I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, and I'm going to be myself. And I, I it was interesting, and in, in this book, Oh, excuse me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. It, it we good? We'll sort it out later. Okay. okay. As long as I don't think I got it on your no, boots. No, no. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, what, what was I saying? Um, oh, so, so yeah. Uh, but in this book, it was interesting. I was able to, I feel like, kind of be, uh, be that. Um, be totally myself on the page, and I can relate to your friend who then I wouldn't necessarily be this with everybody I know. And so there was a sort of compartmentalizing of identities and realizing that, oh, you know, I'm not always exactly who I am in every, um, I, I wear lots of different hats. And, um, and it was interesting in the fear project because I did need to compartmentalize. I pitched the book as this sort of neuroscience pop science read and I thought uh, you know the publisher I was working with was interested in that angle um, and it became very interesting to report but it wasn't quite um, 
fitting with that, like, I can say whatever I want to say approach, because I was also right. doing this journalist sort of pop science, like Malcolm Gladwell thing, and it was really hard to um, hold back just enough, and it was, it was a weird experience, and I actually, in my next book, was like, I never want to do that again. I just want to tell a story from my heart, and... Um, have the reader step into my mind stream. I don't want to be trying to fit into um, sort of another culture because that's what my publisher wants. And I, I, I was able to, and that was the most valuable lesson for me ever as a writer was to do something where I wasn't uh, able to be 100%, say 100% what I wanted to say. Got things falling <laughs> off. And, uh, um, force field around. <laughs> <you know. laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this as powerful as possible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, um, so I, that was such a good experience to to sort of be a little bit dishonest and maybe compartmentalize in a way that didn't feel right. And uh, and then in my my last book that I just turned in, um, whether or not anyone else likes it, I know I like it. And, and that was more important to me on, on my deathbed that I can say that, you know, I said my piece the way I wanted to say it. Um, when you were asking that question, I thought, I hope there are no editors in the room who, who, would, who won't hire us now. Um, <laughs> because uh, I've seen it from both sides. I mean, I'm a writer who's out with editors, and I've been an editor who's dealt with writers. So um, before I was an editor who dealt with writers, I was probably a more adamant writer <laughs> than <laughs> I am now. Uh, and maybe it's just because I'm, I'm, I'm older, too, and uh, I know that I don't know everything. Uh, it's amazing how I always thought when you were when I was younger and I got older that uh, I'd be more secure about the things I knew and I you know I'd have all this knowledge and acquired not the older you get I didn't realize the less sure you are you know it's like there's more doubt in you because uh, you know you, how much you don't know you know but you know I was once I mean I'm obviously a 12 stepper and I'm I go to the rooms and I go to my meetings and and you know some people have trouble with God and some people don't there's this God component to to uh, 12 steps and uh, one one person said something in a meeting once that really has always stuck with me that God is everything I don't know that's what God is and I've always held on to that because that's a that's the that's the most vast concept of God I've ever heard because there is a vastness to what I don't know there and God resides there mm. That sounds like a good place to uh, start asking for audience questions. Anybody have any questions about God? There you go, uh, gentlemen uh, in the orange. <laughs> um, uh, this is a question for either or both of you. It's a very naive question. It's more sociological than literary. Um, but I suspect you may get asked it. Um, uh, is there an age beneath which one should not try to write a memoir? Now, one view, I suppose, the naive view would be you have to have a lot of experience or live a rich life before you have anything to say. Uh, and and uh, certainly Kevin had such a life um, at an early age. And the other, I imagine, more sophisticated view is you can turn anything into good material if you uh, have the skill and the insight. I, I, this question came to mind um, just a half hour ago because Joyce Maynard was giving a talk, who uh, was the first famous, of course, for writing her memoir at age 18 and having the Dory prominently published. So I wonder what your thoughts are. To what's the, how old? 
that you have to be to write a memoir, gentlemen? Um, I think you have to be old enough to be able to write a good one. I mean, I mean, it's. <laughs> uh, I don't think there should be an arbitrary age. I, I think Joyce is who's sitting back there now. Uh, I, she didn't write it at eighteen. She wrote it about her eighteen-year-old self. Am I right about that? Uh, yeah. Um, um, no, I wrote it. You, oh, you did write it at eighteen. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're Joyce, I would say 18 is the right age. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I, I, would, I would say any age once you can write because uh, there are memoirs that are about something that happens that is amazing. You know, you went to war, whatever, and, and they still have to just be well-written if they're going to be any good. And then there are memoirs that are just about someone's internal world, and everybody has an interesting internal world. Um, so if you can write well about those little challenges that you face, you know, ordering coffee and having anxiety about that, I mean, that can be a beautiful story. So it's just the age that you can write well. I mean, Anne Frank wrote a diary, but I mean, she was very young. <laughs> I mean, um, so, but it was, it's, sort of, it's sort of the same thing. Next, I thought I saw another hand out there. I had a suggestion about maybe the time to publish a memoir or share a memoir is when the story has reached a spot where the reader would be satisfied. Okay, it can stop here and you know rest at least a while. It's not interrupted because maybe for young lives, it's interrupted before they get to the point where it has a roundness to it. Well, I mean, I wrote my first memoir in my early 50s, and I ended that at the age of 19. So I didn't write about my whole life. No, I, no, I wrote, I mean yeah. the whole life. I mean that there's a story right. that like, you can give some satisfaction. The reader doesn't need to know too much more about what happened next in order to get a satisfaction. Well, I sort of wanted to want to know what happened next so I could write another one. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good point. And, uh, um, you know, you could write a great memoir about a week of your life, and... Uh, or, uh, and so if you have a beginning, I think good stories have a beginning, middle, and an end, and to your point, yeah. There's no guarantee. There's no I guarantee. Mean, I, I had done back, I had, I, on Monday night, I did one with Courtney Love that was phenomenal. I mean, it was amazing. And I was like, really like, full of myself. Like, this is, I'm getting good at this. I've developed this muscle. Then 24 hours later, it was like, fuck, I'm not good at this. I mean, so it's, I mean, it's a real different, you don't know, because it's, in, you're in performance space with, with uh, someone. I mean, I'm gonna be curious to go back and look at the raw video of it because I know when I do other kinds of interviews when you're one-on-one -on -one and you tape them and you think, I didn't get anything out of that person. That was bad, there was no connection. And, and what went on there? And then you listen back to it, you realize you did get some good stuff. And, and plus if there's a weird dynamic and if you're writing something, you can write about the dynamic 
you could sort of use that so as a way into the story, whereas this was like 50 minutes, 55 minutes of real time, people watching, like I felt like they were just slowing down and there was a wreck on the highway. It was, I mean, uh, the woman who owns the, owns the current, Carol, she, I was saying, oh my God, what was that? That was so hard. She said, you know what it was like? I went, what? She said, it was like one of those Thanksgiving dinners when, when you sit at the table and you don't like your family member and you're just trying to make conversation. I went, <laughs> was that bad? But I can't wait. It was an interesting dynamic. I won't. I don't think I'll interview many more memoirists. Let's put it that way. It was hard. It was really hard. You know, I like each of you to give me the one-minute summary of your best advice to somebody out there, anybody who wants to write a memoir. Jamal, top of your head. Uh, well, I would say. Uh, don't get discouraged, <laughs> and, and it's it's really hard. Um, so you know, keep chipping away and uh, write every day. Yeah, it's about uh, getting up and doing it. It's it's a job. Uh, I learned long ago not to wait for inspiration, but inspiration can arrive in the middle of doing the job, uh, and write. Don't self-censor yourself. Uh, if there's something that's scaring you to write about and you think, I shouldn't write about that, that's not, I can't write about that, that scares me, write about it. That's what you should write about, if, if it scares you. Seek what you fear. My guest, Jamal Yogi and Kevin Sessoms, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. I'd like to thank you for sharing your insights with us. Um, Keith, for what you uh, do best about interviewing people, and you can continue to listen on podcasts. Um, Jamal, you can continue to engage with our authors. Jamal will be um, having his documentary forthcoming in the near future. Yeah, we're finding out about festivals in the next few months, so. Sorry, Rick, I, I, I apologize. That was a big blunder. Speaking of deer in headlights on the stage, Rick, and I said the wrong name, I apologize. So please engage with Rick and his podcast and online. Jamal has a movie coming out. Kevin, you can catch in a deer in headlights or some other um, exciting moment at the Curran Theater. So and I hope that you will stay for a few minutes and engage with our community. There will be book signings and book sales in the Cultural Arts Hall as well as lots of food and drink until we start with our headlights at seven. So thank you all so much. Um, you take us on journeys, albeit very different journeys, that are very honest and, and entail quite a lot of bravery. So thank you for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Thank you, thank you gentlemen. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.